Richard Howard, who works out of the AWS London office, has interviewed a number of angel investors about the mistakes first-time founders should avoid, why CEOs should be open to mentorship, and more. Hi, my name is uh, Richard Howard. I'm a startup business development manager for Amazon Web Services here in the UK. And this is a podcast series interviewing angel investors uh, about what they're looking for when it comes to entrepreneurs and startups that they invest in. Uh, with me today, I have uh, Chris Addos back. He is an illustrious angel investor, particularly in the UK. Over 66 startups invested on a personal basis. He has over 100 of you, including his Techstars investments, and we can touch on his Techstars career. He was the UK Business Angel Association Angel of the Year last year, and he has a particular penchant for fintech investments, and ones that you might have heard of, Atom Bank and Rails Bank, which I think was announced yesterday or two days ago that they just raised a $10 million Series A. Uh, so Chris, thanks for joining me. Congratulations on the on the Series A for Rails Bank. Yeah, thanks for having me, Richard. Really good to be here. Um, so could you just give us a little bit of, of your background, the stuff that you were doing previous to, to your angel investing? Okay. Yeah. First of all, you can tell by the voice. Uh, we're sitting here in London. I'm, I wasn't born in London. I was actually born in Detroit, uh, although I've, I've uh, lived in the UK now for just over 23 years. So uh, I've just passed that 50% mark of my life outside of America and, and in Britain. So honorary Brit, I would say. So I, I came over here actually in a job with a big corporate with uh, what was once a great company, GE Capital, and uh, stayed with their consumer finance business for uh, for just over 10 years, actually. And uh, the business I was with was their consumer lending business, all sorts of roles, uh, two prominent roles. One was I, I worked in sort of the back office, uh, working with all the, the customers that um, needed to be underwritten for credit, maybe some fraud, some um, recoveries. And then in the second half of my GE career here, they moved me down south. So I, I, I was in Leeds for six years. Uh, so famously, one of those few Americans that lived outside of London for a period of their life. But after six good years in Leeds, I moved down to, to London and I took a, a P&L job to, to run a sales finance business for GE. And what I quickly found out was that a lot of the, the people that we are underwriting probably did not deserve credit and we shouldn't be giving them credit. And so I turned into a, uh, a P&L manager who, uh, rather than growing his book, he drastically tried to shrink it. So in 2005, 2006, when a lot of my colleagues were, were trying to you know, lend more money, I was reining in credit and I was bringing it back in. And to the point came in 2006 when um, a colleague of mine uh, and I were sitting down and we basically said, this is crazy. Financial services is a great place to be, but not on the lending side. Um, we should be doing the opposite. So uh, we resigned in December 2006 and what probably became... Uh, the best uh, call of my life, um, I stopped becoming a lender and uh, I became a buyer of bad debt. So um, <laughs> uh, we we launched a business that uh, focused on buying non-performing loans from high street banks eight months before the consumer credit crisis started. Wow. So I was in the right business at the right time. We went on to grow that business into the most profitable buyer of uh, non-performing loans from uh, UK banks during the crisis. Uh, culminating in a big purchase. Uh, we bought Northern Rock's unsecured lending business from Her Majesty's Treasury uh, with a couple other people. Uh, and we paid for the, the proceeds of that with a, a high-yield bond that we, we issued on the Luxembourg Stock Exchange backed by reperforming non-performing loans. So it was, uh, it was interesting. We, we built a, quite a considerable business. And seven years after we started it, we sold it for just under $500 million. So it was a, it was a good run. But um, I was ready to do something different. So, you know, as an entrepreneur, you have to be incredibly focused 
And, uh, and what that means is a, a lot of the things that you, you enjoy in life um, you perhaps go by the wayside. So uh, a lot of the, the hobbies that I enjoyed doing, there just wasn't enough time in, in the day to do that. Super focused for those seven years. We had a nice exit and I decided I wanted to do something different and go broad again after being focused for such a long time. So I wasn't quite sure what to do though. And I had a chance meeting with uh, a guy named Greg Rogers who had just set up Techstars uh, FinTech partnership with Barclays Bank. And um, he was a few months into that, and he asked whether I would be a mentor on the program, and I thought that sounded great. I mentored for a few months during the program. I really enjoyed it. Um, I wound up actually making a few angel investments off the back of that. And I was named one of their one of their best mentors, which was a lovely accolade to have. And a few weeks after that, Greg approached me and he said, how would you like to have my job? <laughs> and uh, and I, I was kind of looking for my next gig at that point. And, uh, and, I, and I said, that sounds actually really good. I mean, the, the gut check was immediately there. I didn't have to think. You know, a few weeks later, I'm in Boulder. I'm being interviewed by David Cohen, David Brown. And uh, probably about a month after that, I, I went into the role. I ran Techstars, uh, FinTech, or the Barclays Accelerator powered by Techstars uh, for five years investing in 50 companies from all over the world and a whole variety of fintech uh, businesses with uh, a great deal of success. We, we backed businesses such as Everledger, uh, ShieldPay, CMU Dime, Bokio, Flux. Uh, and, and by the way, along this time, I, I was doing a lot of private angel investing as well. So I'm, I'm sort of 66, 67 and counting. But now that I've invested in over um, 100 businesses, I've sort of reached a point where uh, I'm kind of thinking, what's next? And uh, that's something I'm actually working on at the moment. Awesome. Are we allowed to know what that is, or is it? It's it's likely going to be in the in the in the investment space. Okay. Obviously, as an angel investor, it, it's brilliant. Um, I'm not leading rounds clearly as an angel. I'm trying yeah. to be a value add person who's uh, not only you know making a, a small investment, but who's trying to uh, to help the founders and face a very vulnerable time in their life. And as someone who was a founder um, himself. Uh, who didn't have any mentorship, I'd say. And, and we didn't take any angel money or, or VC money for that matter. Um, I think it's really interesting how that space has evolved where there's lots of, you know, credible, helpful, nice people that you can lean on as a founder today that, you know, only 10 years ago I didn't have as a founder. Yeah. So um, I, 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 tr I try to be as, as helpful as I can. That's awesome. So you mentioned that when you came into Mentor for Techstars in that first cohort that was being run by Greg, that led you to making some angel investments. Were those your first angel investments? They were, yeah. That's the thing about angel investments. And, and, and until you actually are, are liquid for a bit of cash, it's kind of hard to be an angel. Yeah. So yeah, while I was being a uh, an entrepreneur, um, all of my limited cash was paying for my rent and my uh, you know food for my children, to be fair. Yeah. But I started, I always wanted to be an angel. Um, I like the idea of it, but until we sold the company, that wasn't going to happen. But I made my first angel investment uh, within just a couple months, actually. Uh, in fact, it might have been about 60 days after we sold. Uh, and that was uh, an angel investment into uh, Atom Bank, okay. uh, which is now backed by BBVA and a number of other notable investors. Yeah. And what was it just like, what was it about Atom Bank at that time that, that led you to say, hey, something I want to do, but you guys are going to be literally, you're the first check that I'm going to write as, as an angel. What was it? The the founding team? Was it the the idea? What was it that kind of got you excited? Yeah. So it was actually a, a guy named Christian Kent who introduced me to Anthony Thompson, who is the chairman of Atom. He was the former CEO of Metro Bank. And I had known of him. I think I heard him speak before. And, and um, 
I was introduced to him and I, I bought into his vision. Yep. You know, that vision, you know, sitting here in 2019, you know, when there's a dozen kind of neobanks might say, might seem as interesting, but back in 2014, uh, it was it was a big deal, right? Yep. So he wanted to launch a digital bank, you know, didn't have um, all the branches effectively. And by doing so uh, and doing it with new technology, it could be run a lot more efficiently than a lot of the incumbent banks. Um, plus, he was Anthony, and he was a credible guy. He was building a credible team. So I bought into that, and that was before I joined Techstars and before I had the benefit of training my gut, you know, having met thousands of, of founders. But, you know, I sat down with Anthony, and, and uh, I bought into his vision. I bought into him as a founder. Obviously, financial services is a massive addressable market um, any way you cut it. And, uh, you know, that's that's turned out to be Turned out to be true. You know, Atom Bank is still growing, still, um, you know, it's, although it's scaling now, I think it's lent about two, two and a half billion pounds. It's still very much uh, not an incumbent. You know, yeah, it's, it, sure. it feels like a startup still, uh, which is which is good. And since then, um, you know, a number of other fintechs crossed my paths and I've made investments and, you know, we'll just have to wait a few years to see sort of uh, how the dust settles and which ones turn out to be the big wins and maybe the small wins. For sure. And you mentioned there kind of, uh, you know, tech stars helping train your gut. Has your investment thesis changed over time or has it evolved as you've met more founders, made more investments? And what is it change that you're looking for? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Um, there's a big difference between venture investing and, say, M&A or private equity investing. Yeah. The biggest thing is there's not much data to go by, right? Yeah. You know, I, I hate to say, you know, your gut matters because in this world where everything needs to be an algorithm to give you credibility, you know, this is this is not one. Um, yeah. I have come across uh, tech companies that say they have a platform that'll help, you know, people choose better venture investing, but, you know, I don't buy it and most venture investors don't buy it. I think it's still very much an art over a science and therefore uh, training your gut is, um, is super important. In terms of like what's changed, I think sort of having sold the, my company and then I moved out, I wasn't 100% certain that I was going to just invest in fintech companies coming out. And actually, if you look at the first half dozen companies I invested in, it was sort of even matched sort of fintech, non-fintech. And what I've learned over time is um, in addition to finding amazing founders, which I think all six of them were, whether they worked out or not, I think they're all amazing founders and that stays the same, is it it, it does... It does pay to specialize to some extent, mainly because um, there's only so many hours in the day, right? And I'm already feeling like I'm uh, three miles wide and, you know, two inches deep. But for me, you know, what I learned over time is that I could build up a network. I could build up a network of experts that I, I really respected their opinions that could help me on some of those decisions. And you can do that within a vertical. You can't do that in a, you know, on a, on a super broad sense. So what I found over time, and especially having joined Techstars, which is very much a mentor-based yep. accelerator, is that there are amazing mentors out there and subject matter experts who are very happy uh, to be lent on and, you know, and they'll give your opinion on things. And um, I've taken full advantage of that. And I think that my investments are getting better year on year. Yep. Oh, that's awesome. So can, as, as you're getting better, as you're being able to lean on these experts, as you're focusing on fintech as a vertical in particular, so if I'm an entrepreneur and I'm listening to this podcast, mm -hmm. what is it that, that I should have uh, that would really kind of attract you and other investors like that? Is it is it team? Is it traction? Is it market size? What is it that you particularly are really focused on? Yeah, it's... Um Obviously, it's it's all of them, but yeah. um, obviously, um, it kind of depends who you're speaking with. I mean, I mean, some of the, some of the people listening to this will be entrepreneurs that are very very early. They'll be targeting angel investors, 
Some people will be a little further along and they're talking to VC investors. And, um, you know, there's an expression called VC math. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a founder and you sit down with a VC and you talk about how, you know, you're growing and, and then you see a path to exit in three years and you think you can get a hundred thousand pound exit, they don't want to hear that, yeah. right? They don't want to hear that and you shouldn't be saying it. And actually, if you're thinking that you've got only enough fuel in your, your tank to last two or three years, you really probably have to question yourself as a founder because the fact is, you know, it takes much longer than you think. You know, my company that I started, uh, we sold it in seven years. Looking back, and we probably could have gone a little further. So what what I think you need to do is you need to take the, um, you, you need to probably break those two into two categories. So start starting with angels, you need to be somebody they like, yeah. right? Um, I think a lot of angels are doing this partially because of economics and partially because they sometimes want to get involved, right? They want to be mentors. And if you don't accept mentorship, then you probably won't be getting their money. And, and on, on the flip side, you have, you have uh, venture, which um, you need to be the right, you need to be the right company, but you also have to have all the, the, all the math sorted out. So yeah. you need to have a huge addressable market that you can demonstrate is there, but um, show that you have the focus to go after a, a niche or a small part of that market initially. So they don't want you to boil the ocean, but they want to know that with the right support, and if you can prove yourself on a smaller market, you could go after something much, much bigger, and therefore their investment, you know, with the right support could be very, very big. So you need to demonstrate you have the right team. You need to demonstrate that you have a massive market. You need to make sure that you're in it for the long haul. Yep. And you need to be someone, again, if you're talking early, that um, uh, is, is someone who's likable and accepts mentorship because you're, you're talking to early stage people. Yeah. So if I'm I'm a I'm an entrepreneur, I've started my fintech business. How do you like personally? How do you manage the deal flow? Do you accept kind of like cold emails and cold introductions, or do you have a process that you go through for for getting people, potential entrepreneurs, potential investments to come to you? Yeah, it's it's hard. I mean, um, especially since I I got my uh, angel investor of the year, I I get a lot of inflow, yeah. a lot of stuff over LinkedIn. It's really tough because um, I'm only one person. I can't possibly field it all. And if, if people come in cold and I can see on LinkedIn that we're connected to nobody in common, that's that's pretty odd. And you yeah. have to look out for, for nefarious people, right? I like meeting people face-to-face. It's not scalable, but that's my preference. And as a Techstars MD, uh, I, the days would go by where I would actually have 20 face-to-face meetings in one day, which is insane. But for me, that that was a really good way to kind of figure out whether this was a founder I could work with, uh, whether their their heart was in it for the long haul, and whether they'd accept mentorship. Just these kind of basic things. Yeah. In that first meeting, am I going to be an expert in their business? No way, right? Um, I, I might just have a gut feel that there's something there, probably worth having a second meeting, right? Yeah. And that's that's kind of the, the first filter that we go through. But in terms of sort of, uh, you know, deal flow, I mean, I think being in London, first of all, there's a certain amount of curation that happens just being here. Uh, and doing fintech. So I think, I honestly think that London and fintech are the, the two best things for me right now. Pushing, you know, the political um, issues aside, in or out, I don't think that changes fintech in London. Yeah. Are you looking at companies when you're investing on a personal basis through a different lens than you would through Techstars? Or is it just the, you know, I would personally invest in all of these companies these ones just happen to have applied for the Techstars program? Yeah, I think it's pretty much the same lens. Obviously with Techstars, they... Um, they have to go down the uh, the road where they have to accept mentorship. Otherwise, they're, they're not in, right? Because yeah. that's that's the terms of the deal. I would say they are broadly the same. And yeah. I think that what I've learned as a Techstars MDs is, is really helped me as a private investor. Okay. Do you think 
all companies at an early stage could benefit from going through an accelerator like Techstars, or are there some where it doesn't necessarily make sense? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I, I don't think every company could benefit. But I, I also um, should probably put down the table that we, we've had, I've had entrepreneurs in their 20s. I've also had entrepreneurs in their 60s have gone through. Yeah. I've had entrepreneurs who have never been an entrepreneur before. I've also had uh, entrepreneurs who have been entrepreneurs multiple times before and have had multiple exits before. Yeah. And uh, people who have gone to university and people who haven't gone to university, uh, neurotypical you know, and, and non-neurotypical. So, I mean, it's, it's all sorts that go through. So um, I'm, I'm a bit loath to say that um, there's a certain category of people that, you know, an accelerator is not for. Yeah. But um, obviously, if you're, you know, you've raised 100 million pounds, you probably have other things to worry about. But we have had companies that have raised two, three, four, five million pounds pre-program and have come onto the program and highly benefited from that. Often it, it's, it's companies that want to scale in a different geography um, if you're a little bit later stage like that. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, so I went through Techstars, uh, Techstars London in 2014. Uh, I found it in, incredibly valuable, but we were at a very, very early stage. Yes. We were at, I think we'd, we'd made the basis of the product and we had like one one customer on and Techstars was, was super helpful in accelerating. But I think, you know, if, if I'm an entrepreneur and I listen to this, you, you often joke with the, you know, should I go through an accelerator? What is the value if I, if I don't know anyone who's gone through it before versus kind of trying to reach out to those angels directly and, and maybe bypassing the accelerator? Yeah, well, the, the best thing to do, I think, is if you're considering it, um, reach out to a founder that has gone through yeah. an accelerator or indeed the, the Techstars accelerator. There's no better way to, to to check yourself than to talk to a fellow uh, founder. Yeah, uh, no, I, I think that. And, and there's more founders than there are Chris Ottlesbox, yeah. so uh, <laughs> that would be easier for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think uh, speaking to founders, and, and we were talking kind of before we started recording about the empathy that you have as a, as a, as a former founder, I would give that advice to, to all new entrepreneurs is reach out to, to other founders and, and talk to them because you're going to get that empathy that you just can't get from people who haven't been through it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to, to your to your listeners, we are we are talking about the differences between investors, especially VCs, uh, probably West Coast VCs versus European VCs. I think it's been in the press recently that something like eight percent of so, yeah, uh, European VC, uh, VCs have been founders, and I can't remember the number in the states. It was forty percent or fifty percent or something like that. And whether VCs or investors that have been entrepreneurs make better investors, yeah. I don't think that I know the answer to that, um, but I think the thing we agreed upon was absolutely the empathy piece. When I was building my business, there were there were weeks that uh, our founders uh, had calls on the weekend. We are growing well, but it was it was a complete cash suck, and we had to make payroll. And you make payroll by writing personal checks. Yeah. And uh, there was a point where um, I had taken all the equity out of my house, I sold off all my personal investments, and I had taken a personal loan, put it into the business, and that was to pay for my staff. Yeah. And that's another interesting debate about sort of what is a company for, you know, is it about maximizing profit? Yes. Is it, a, what are the other stakeholders, yeah. the environment, you know, your, your, the people involved and things like that. And, you know, we are very much wanting it to be a, a success financially, but when you walk and, you know, you meet, you employ people, they have themselves to look after, their families to look after. And uh, we made a, a few hard decisions there and we decided that we, we knew that this was going to be a great success. So, you know, seven years of, of putting your 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 time, your effort, and your money into something, I think actually goes a long way to make you a, a good investor and certainly provide a shoulder to cry on for yeah. <laughs> for uh, people that you invest in. And and particularly around that mentorship piece that you were talking about for for entrepreneurs, they need to be uh, open to mentorship. And if you've had that, you know, you've had to write personal checks to make payroll. You've woken up like in a 
pool of sweat because um, things are going wrong. Having that empathy, I think, as an investor, is is uh, is gold, basically. Yeah, absolutely, and and I, I guess, um, and, and you know, you know, writing the checks is one thing, but there's also uh, a whole. A variety of things that might be happening behind the scenes. So, like, you know, people have families. In my case, I had uh, three little children born within about 20 months of one another. So uh, there's a lot of, a lot going on back then. And, and um, I, I hope that makes me a better investor because I lived live through that. Yeah. Cool. So if we pivot a little bit and uh, go into a little bit of, of advice, particularly to um, to the entrepreneurs that, that are listening or the hopeful entrepreneurs that are listening, what are the best and kind of worst pitches that you've that you've received? And what is it that makes a really good pitch versus what makes it like a horrible pitch? Well, I guess if I'm meeting someone the first time, I, I, I don't necessarily want to be pitched. Sure. So if someone sits down and I um, I get them a cup of tea and we sit down and I and I want to find out the why, you know, yeah. why are you a founder? You know, tell me about yourself, that sort of thing. I've had some people that cut me off and thrust a PowerPoint under my nose and force me to go through that. Yeah. That's a complete turnoff. Yeah. Um, because they're, you know, I want to understand the why, not the what. Yeah. When I first meet somebody. So for, again, for those of you listening, if you're meeting someone for the first time, you know, get to know that person. You know, if, if they do decide to invest in you, it could be a five, 10 year relationship, right? And it's important that they understand your business and how it works. They don't necessarily want to understand it in the first 10 minutes. So, uh, you know, take a deep breath, get to know the person, then get into the the, the nuts and bolts of the business. Um, for me personally, I want to understand the why. Yeah. Okay. So other than kind of thrusting a PowerPoint under your nose, are there other common mistakes that entrepreneurs make when they're not just meeting you, but other investors think you might have seen through your mentorship of the Techstars companies as well? Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of mistakes. Where do I start? I mean, uh, Fundraising would be a good place to start. Uh, most people don't have uh, a clue on how to how to raise money, right? Yeah. Uh, even even with the things like uh, Cedars and, and CrowdCube and stuff like that, a lot of people don't have a clue. Um, I spoke to a founder a few weeks ago who um, wanted to raise some money on on, on CrowdCube yeah. and thought you just kind of just put your name out there. And I'm like, no, because anyone who raised on CrowdCube has probably two-thirds of their round subscribed. And the moment they go live on CrowdCube, they're two-thirds subscribed from big ticket writers, and they just use that to kind of finish off, right? Yeah. That's just one example. But uh, I'll go back to mentorship, actually. You know, we're fortunate to be in London. You know, it's a wealthy city. There's some amazing government tax-efficient ways to invest with startups, right? Making, making friends, um, taking mentorship sometimes has the uh, added advantage that those people invest in you as angels. Yeah. And that's something that just takes time. So I think you need to, to do the hard yards, find the people that can help you, and then, and then hope that those people will, will write those early checks. When they do commit, the, the, t- the two next questions you should ask them are, one, thank you for committing to invest 50,000 pounds, Richard Howard, into my startup. First of all, would it be okay if I told other investors that you had committed and use your name? Yeah. And you will say, probably yes. The second, uh, the second thing is, Richard, who else in your network would like our business? And would you be willing to introduce those people to you and say that you're investing? And chances are you will say, I'll get back to you, yeah. right? <laughs> and then you probably will do it. Yeah. So those are like the two kind of um, just two common sense things, but actually yeah. a lot of people don't do them. And once you get some high profile angels on board, perhaps then that's the time to either close a small round yeah. and or go into the, the, the world of you know, venture, provided you have venture type metrics where you can say, right, I'm, I'm backed by these prominent angels and I'd like to extend my round and I'm looking for someone to write, a, obviously, a, 
you know, a seed size or an A size check. Yeah. And then, so when you, when you're at that fundraising stage and you've maybe got a couple of angels on board, what do you advise entrepreneurs or what experience have you had as an investor around the valuation question? This is a question that I hear a lot yeah. from, from early stage. Like, what is the value? Like, what, how do I set the valuation? What do I do? Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, and, and the answer is it's, it's tough, isn't it? Because um, if you're early stage, you, you often don't have any revenue or yep. if they have metrics, they're not the metrics that are, are easy to value a company on. I mean, the answer comes down to the value of your company is really a function of demand. And if you want to raise a million pounds and you have commitments for 600,000 pounds and you set a valuation, that's that valuation is a bogus valuation. If you are two, three times subscribed, then um, there's some movement in that. So, um, you know, our, our advice is to first, when you, when you raise money, if you, if you want to raise 1.5 million, don't go out raising 1.5 million, go out with a, a lower number and beat that number. Because um, if you say, all right, I want to raise 1.5, but, um, you know, I, let's go out with 750 because I'm pretty confident I can definitely get above that and you're 1.2 times subscribed at 750,000, that's a successful round and you close on that, right? What if you get to just over 750,000 and you're, you'd be very happy to close on that, but you told everyone it's a 1.5 million. Now you've failed, right? And you have no, no say over really the valuation because it's, it's just a sham. Yeah. So um, our advice is to uh, go out with a much more sensible ask and blow it out of the water and then go back to people and say, Thank you for your commitment of five hundred thousand um, pounds. I'm actually two times over subscribed, and and then you can set the terms that yeah. way. You know what a big mistake that people do is is when they meet with people, the other party can't help but negotiate. So if you're if you're saying, Chris, I'd like to invest, and I'll say I'm quite interested, and I say I'll, I'll do it, I, you you should probably try to ask me what what the conditions of my investment are. Yeah, and I might say, well, the condition of my investment is. It's a, you know, your valuation is no more than 3 million pounds, right? Yep. And then don't say yes or no. Just say, just do re reflective listening and say, Chris, I understand um, that it'd be great if you could invest. And um, I understand that one of your conditions is a valuation of 3 million. Are there any more conditions to you in investing? And maybe I'll, 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 I'll give you one or two more. Don't say yes or no. Yep. Just say you heard them, write them down. And at the end of it, you know, shake my hand and say, I would love to have you on the ca cap table. Yep. I'm early. It's early days with me investing. Um, I understand your conditions. I want to give you updates, you know, weekly or monthly or whatever you, what cadence you decide. And then go out, add my conditions to your spreadsheet. Chris will invest X amount on these conditions. Speak to 50, 100 more people. Do the same thing. Hopefully you're three times oversubscribed. Then go to the person that has the fewest number of conditions. Lock them down and work your way down the list. By the time you get to the person that set the most conditions, you'll find that those conditions fall away. Yeah. And, and that, that, is, that is something that I've seen a, a number of portfolio companies do incredibly well. Likewise, I've seen another, a number of people that have started negotiating. Yeah. So if I put out a really crazy term like, I want a five-time liquidation preference, which I would never do, you have to stop yourself by saying, Chris, that's crazy, right? You basically have to just say, Chris, I understand that this is important to you and you would like a five-time liqu liquidation preference. Yeah. And, and if you do, you'll invest this money. And I'll say, yes right? That will fall away. If yeah. I really like you and I like the company, my crazy terms yeah. that I might come up with will fall away. And, um, you know, that's, that's something that um, you could probably practice with your, your partner or your business colleague. Uh, so when you actually get in front of an investor, you don't do what's obvious, which is, you know, stick your foot in and say, that's, that's a crazy yeah, term, right? You got you to keep your face very calm as well. You yeah. give it away. It's, it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a dance, you know? Yeah. And it takes practice.
Yeah. And it's actually something that I, I work with with uh, portfolio companies all the time. And because of that, uh, our companies generally get funded. So, uh, you know, textiles companies are somewhere between 80 and 85% funded coming off program. That's about three times the the, the world average, actually, yeah. coming off similar type programs. And do you, do you find it's a similar dynamic when you're going from that seed round to more of like a series A VC round? Is it, you know, you're set an amount that is that is reasonable and then you're subscribed, you can raise it, you know, speak to as many VCs as you possibly can, you know, create that spreadsheet with the terms. Do you, or is it, is it very different kind of raising? It's, it's a little different. Obviously, the, the universe of VCs is much more narrow than the universe of, sure. of angels, right? So you have to be a, a bit more careful. I mean, some of those things definitely hold true. There's going to be certain VCs that you will make no sense for you to speak to. Sure. And if you turn up to a VC that doesn't invest in Series A, they invest in Series C, you're going to look a bit silly, right? Um, so the key thing there is to, is, is to do your homework on the VC, the fund, um, the partner, and the portfolio companies they've invested in. And um, it doesn't. It certainly pays to back-channel portfolio companies. So if I'm a partner in a fund and I've invested in 20 companies, what you should be doing is you should be looking at the companies I've invested in. For the ones that look interesting, you might want to reach out to the, the CEO of those companies and say, what's this VC like as a as a member of your board, perhaps, or as an investor. Hopefully, oh, you might even know one of the, the CEOs or be, be connected to them via a friend. That's, a, that's generally a good way. Another way to, to do it is, um, is to look at who the, um, who the investors were uh, in those companies before they were invested in by the VC. So I've invested in quite a few companies that have um, taken follow-on investment from great VCs. And because of that, um, I might have to remind them, but because of that, um, I'd like to say that if I called up a VC, I could say, hey, I, you know, I just a reminder, I invested in five companies that you want as an angel that you wound up investing in as a Series A. I think I've got one that may not be on your radar. What what a great way. Yep. And in order to do that, you probably have to spend a little time perhaps looking at cap tables or Crunchbase or something like that just to find out who's who. Uh, but this is all the work that needs to be done before you reach out. Yep. So when you do reach out direct, let's say, um, you, you've covered your bases or... Uh, you use one of those those people that you've reached out to to perhaps make an introduction, and you know I I, I hate to say it because I, I it's it's not totally fair, right? Yeah. What if you don't have someone in that network? That's tough. And, yeah. You know I didn't I didn't write write the playbook, but these these are things that people do, and I think for people listening, that's probably a good place to start. Yeah. No, I I, th- I think it makes sense. Like it's. It, it is tough if you don't have that network or if you're just starting out. Um, as you mentioned, you know you won the UK BAA Angel of the Year and your inbox has been flooded ever since with probably a mix of terrible pitches up to, to okay pitches. Part of the entrepreneur's job is to build that network and that starts reaching out to founders. And then if they're doing something interesting, the founders will reach out to their own investors and say, hey, I've got a guy who's doing something interesting. Um, I mean, I assume that's part of your deal flow comes from investments you've already made. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, that's that's incredible. I mean, like I said, the people I've invested in have been really, really diverse, and I'm quite proud of that. And their networks are as well. So um, there, there are certain founders I just think have an incredible eye. I, I was the first investor in a, um, an insurance tech business in London called Cover, and the CEO, Freddie McNamara, uh, in addition to being a great CEO, uh, has a really strong network and I think has a great great eye. And maybe when he makes Cover a great success, he'll be a VC. Yeah. But in the meantime, I hope that he continues to... to to introduce me to, to really amazing founders and interesting companies. And I have I have quite a few founders that I've invested in that that do that, and I really appreciate that. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So one of the other things I wanted to ask you was, you're, you're a board member at a couple of companies. Uh, 
advisory board. If I was a board member, I think I would definitely not have enough hours in the day. Okay. If you're an entrepreneur, how do you think you should should go about building an advisory board and the, the board, whether it comes to angels slash investors, what should you be looking for um, when it comes to building both of those boards, your actual board and your advisory board? That's good. A very good question. So we'll start with an advisory board. And it's something that you know I think all early stage companies should do. You know, first of all, these are people that you don't necessarily pay, right? It's advisory board. If you come across somebody that says, you know, you have to pay me, you know, um, you know, my day rate or something like that to be an advisory board, I think that's 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 not the right person. You might be able to give somebody a a little tiny bit of equity if you that vest just like anyone else. Yeah, that's perfectly fine. But it's it's generally people that can fill gaps. You know, you you are your early stage founder. You can't hire everyone that you want because you don't have the money. And sometimes you fill the gap with with uh, with favors or just good actors in the ecosystem and and mentors or advisory board members of those people. And first of all, if you're you're a tech founder, hopefully you have a technical co-founder. If yeah. you're not a technical founder yourself, uh, but let's say you're weak on B two B sales, and a good B two B salesperson can be quite expensive. Uh, initially, you could probably fill that gap with some advisory board members who. Uh, are uh, within the vertical that you operate, that have a, a natural network, that are willing to lean on their network, and who are willing to do that uh, without any, you know, uh, anything in return, right? Board members, a little bit different. A board meeting is very different from an advisory meeting. Uh, advisory boards, in, in some respects, you know, they can they can help you navigate a path. They can ask you answer some tricky questions, but it's not a, a board, right? They're not responsible, ultimately, for. Uh, uh, for some of the tougher things that uh, a big financial investor would. When you, when you put your board together, I guess the first thing here is, you know, there's two things you have to look out for as a founder, uh, economics and control, right? So hopefully you have your economics right as you put your board together. And then the second thing is, are you in control of your company? Again, I've come across a few people who are very early on, and I'm like, tell me about your board. They're like, I have a board of five. I'm like, well, who are they? They're like, well, it's me uh, and my co-founder and my, you know, my, my three investors. I'm like, and who chairs your board? Well, what are my investors? And and I'm like, so you there's there's five members of your board. You have two, so you're you're already outvoted on your board. And what what have you done? Oh, we're pre-revenue. I'm like, gosh, what what have you done here? And it says a lot about a founder. So and it may not be a bad thing, but it's um, you know my my general view is you should be in control of your company at least through the first couple of rounds of fundraising. Yep. That board is is traditionally your investors. You might have an NED that that you appoint as the founder. It should be your person, um, but you, your board will be your investors. So. You just have to make sure that you choose your investor very carefully. And not all investors are are the same. They might sell themselves as something they aren't. They certainly will all sell themselves as having an amazing network. And yeah. some of them really do. And some of them, some of them don't, right? Yeah. So you have to do your due diligence on on everything. Just like you are you're scouting a prospect, you need you need to scout your board and, yep. and you need a back channel and you need to speak to people that they've invested in and find out if they're what they're like. On their boards, yeah. What are they like as an investor? Because it's a, it's a, it's a potentially a long, long term relationship. Yeah. Well, you said it took you seven years from founding your company to exit, and I think that is, you know, seven to ten years is pretty standard. And if you're going to have somebody that you're going to work with and meet with on a monthly basis, you need to know that you can get along, that you can trust them, and find out what they're like on the boards that they serve on before they get onto yours. Yeah, it's it's not that hard. It takes a little time, but um, and and also if people aren't open about that, then they're probably hiding something, right? Yeah. They should be completely open um, about that. If, if if someone were to say to me, Chris, before I accept your investment, just so you know, I'm going to back channel and speak to people you invested in, yeah. I say, great, it's fine. I have nothing to hide. And actually the fact that they, they've done that makes me 
probably more interested in them as someone to invest in. Yeah, that's awesome. I've held you for for almost long enough. I've got two two final questions for you. Do you have, so Bessemer Ventures has this uh, anti-portfolio of companies that they've met, pitched them, and that they decided to pass on that went on to massive success. Do you have a story of a company that, that you could have invested in but chose not to and then went on to uh, to incredible success? Oh, God. Um, I'm not sure if I even should share this one with you. <laughs> we had a company that we'll just say is a fintech unicorn okay. that uh, applied to my very first program. And uh, when I racked and stacked the companies that applied uh, was by far the number one company. Yep. And I have this in writing and shared with so many people. And um, when we actually talked to the founder and we talked to the, uh, the other people that were evaluating this founder, um, because I was just starting out, I got outvoted. Oh. And that hurts a lot because yeah. this, is a, uh, this is a company that is a complete FinTech darling. Yeah. So that's, that's something that is, uh, is something that is definitely in my anti, it is, it is the top of my anti-portfolio <laughs> and might be the top of my anti-portfolio 10 years from now, <laughs> uh, which, which sort of stinks. The good news is, um, I guess with 118 investments, yeah. if if I like something, I'll do it. And I think um, what was really seminal about that example, about that that company I, I alluded to there, is that was back in December 14. Okay. And uh, what it taught me was, if I have conviction in something, I don't like somebody to overrule me. Yeah. And um, and I think that really was something that uh, pushed me along making personal investments. Okay. So if if uh, if I come across something and for whatever reason somebody tries to talk me out of it, if if I don't really value their opinion, I'll I'll probably do it myself. Okay, awesome. And then the final question is: What advice would you give to an entrepreneur that would make them stand out when they are pitching their business, whether that is just to one angel, to an angel group during a demo day, an accelerator? What can really make them stand out? Oh gosh. Um, well, if they're on stage, perhaps have some acting lessons. <laughs> And um, don't be monotone and, and uh, you know, smile a lot and be excited about your business, right? Because it shows. Don't have fussy slides. Um, I don't want to be looking at a slide. I want to be listening to you. So that's sort of in a like kind of a pitch format. In a, in a sit-down format, do your homework on your investor. Do your, yeah. If you're talking to me, do your homework on me. Know a little bit about me. It's, it's kind of common sense and it's just a basic courtesy, but it, it kind of goes a long way in making you know, your first impression count. Don't um, don't be afraid to say that you you don't understand something or you're you're light on something, uh, especially if you have a few meetings with somebody and, and after that meeting you're always called out on something. Yeah. Sometimes it's best just to, to con- concede it before someone has a chance to catch you out, uh, and, and then say, "And I know I'm weak on this, but this is what we're doing to solve it." Right? I know I don't have a B two B salesperson in place. But look at this amazing advisory board I put together, and this is how I use my advisory board. And when I raise my Series C. One of my first three hires is, you know, this person who I've already identified who would be a great, you know, be. Yeah. then as an investor, I'm like, okay, that's fine. I buy that. You know, you're not, uh, you're not Amazon. You don't have unlimited resources, right? And what I just want to see that is that you, uh, you recognize where you're, you're strong and where you recognize where you need to develop. Um, and you're willing to share that with me. And, and, um, and uh, you know, I, I want to be able to help you with that. Okay. That's awesome. Uh, Chris Adelsbeck, thank you so much for for coming in and talking to us. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for listening. Do us a favor and leave us a review. And if you know someone who we should have on the show, or maybe it's you, reach out to us at startupstories at amazon.com. And subscribe to AWS Startup Stories wherever you get your podcasts.